Hey, my name is Alyssa Wolf, and as a chronic pain specialist, I am on a mission to empower you to tackle your chronic pain naturally by uncovering hidden truths about pain and exposing the deeper cause. I aim to help you transform your relationship with pain because you've been in this relationship for long enough and you deserve better. You just need a little help to get out of it. And that is what the Chronic Pain Breakup Podcast is all about. I'll be busting pain management myths, teaching you some of the mind-blowing neuroscience of pain, and help you overcome some of the roadblocks that are keeping you from seeing real, long-term improvements in pain. Stick with me, and in no time, you'll learn the keys to breaking up with stubborn pain so you can get back to doing what makes you, you, and living your fearless and fulfilling life. So if you have chronic pain and are looking for no-fluff, natural, science-backed pain relief solutions, pull up a seat and get cozy because you are in the right place. Let's get started. Today, I have a very special guest with me. Her name is Dr. Anna Redmond, and she is a chronic pain educator and a chronic pain psychologist in the United States. She currently is in California. And I'm bringing Anna on today to have a conversation about some really important chronic pain topics. And this is how this is happening at such a good time because September is National Pain Awareness Month. And who better to bring on and have a conversation with during National Pain Awareness Month? No other than a chronic pain educator. So welcome, Dr. Redmond, Anna. Hi, thank you. Anna's been totally fine. Awesome. And I've actually been really excited to have you on now for a while now, because honestly, to anyone listening, if you've ever wanted to really build yourself a chronic pain dream team, you'd probably want to start with a chronic pain physical therapist and a chronic pain psychologist, right? And so I honestly love bringing these two professions together because the two of us, we make such a great dream team, right? <laughs> no, I, I always felt like physical therapists were so well-placed because you had the legitimacy of being in like the physical realm still. Unlike me, I'm the psychologist. There's a lot of stigma around that. So when, when we come together, it's always um, such a nice way to start with somebody. Yes. Oh yes. That's so true. And yeah. And it combines like the aspects that you both aspects that you really need in chronic pain care that, you know, like I'm probably better at addressing some of the physical aspects of pain while I don't know everything and anything about trauma and emotions and coping skills and things like that and how to handle relationships. And so bringing both of those skills together in such a specialty is so important and so necessary. So, so yeah, so um, before we get too much into that topic, because that's probably what we're going to really dive into today, you're a chronic pain psychologist, right? So can you tell everyone a little bit about what that means and a little bit maybe more about yourself and a little bit about your background? Sure. Um, and before I do that, it's important for me to say just because I am, I do have training as a clinical pain psychologist, um, but I'm not functioning in that capacity here. So here I'm a chronic pain educator. This is for educational informational purposes only, not a replacement for medical, mental health, uh, advice, treatment, or diagnosis. So it's always important for me to make that really clear right at the beginning. But yeah, pain psychologists, not many people have heard of us. I think uh, there aren't very many of us out there, at least... I think, um, but pain psychologists, um, we work with patients to help them better understand their pain, learn effective coping mechanisms to change the thoughts and feelings and behaviors that come with that experience of chronic pain. 
And so I think even more so in the past five or 10 years, we've been also sort of providing that important neuroscience education piece as well, where I think physical therapists are really leading the charge with that. And now it's sort of starting to spread to other disciplines, uh, which is so important. And when I was functioning as a pain psychologist clinically, I was also kind of addressing and triaging other more serious mental health conditions that patients were experiencing because they compound the clinical picture. And it's important to have treatment that's directly targeting some of those things when they become severe. But, but um, you know, my experience really, and I guess we can get into my background a little bit too, is that I sort of learned that the role of the pain psychologist was to be the listener uh, the person that actually listens to the patient, uh, the person with chronic pain, um, because I don't know how often that was really happening in their appointments after many years of telling their story. And so I think as the pain psychologist, I was sort of the one collecting that bio psychosocial picture, that information from them so that we were leaving no stone unturned in, in taking a holistic approach to their pain. Um, and so as, as a team member on a larger pain team, I would take that information, share it with our team so that everyone was approaching the patient through that larger biopsychosocial lens. And then for the patient, helping them see sort of what is the mind body connection? How does that work? That neuroscience education, um, so they can understand how pain works. And then as pain psychologists, we use evidence-based therapies to teach them all kinds of things and skills to regulate their nervous system and cope with pain on a, on a daily basis. My clinical background is that, you know, I, well, and I've always been interested in that mind body connection and the root of how things happen for us, our experience. So I don't think anyone was surprised when I decided to become a psychologist, mm-hmm. um, but I sort of started in the health psychology realm and just fell into chronic pain. I found that it was just so prevalent across all kinds of, because I, I had a training in general, I was a generalist. So I saw all different kinds of people, whoever walked in my door, I wanted to be able to know how to treat them. And chronic pain was so cre- prevalent across all of the patients coming to my room that um, I felt like I needed to learn more about it. The last clinical job that I had up until two, 2019, I worked at a VA. I was the director of an interdisciplinary pain program, which I ran alongside uh, physical and occupational therapist. So like true dream team right there is mm-hmm. those two professions plus psychology. Um, and I also kind of coordinated all the psychology programs at that hospital. Um, but it felt like most of what I was doing was providing education for patients, providers, families um, at the hospital, local and national calls, just trying to sort of change the way people were talking about pain Mm-hmm. Um, I've since left the VA. I needed more flexibility, spending time at home with my family. I'm a mother to two young children. Um, you know, we had this wonderful interdisciplinary program, but we would only get to treat like, it, what, I forget, it was like eight patients every 10 weeks. Wow. And I always would think like this information is is so good and only so many people are getting it. So my sort of mission is to kind of provide this education that everyone deserves to hear when they have chronic pain um, and make it sort of more digestible and more accessible, like kind of uh, more far reaching than what I could do in a, in a day's work in a typical clinical setting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love what you said about being the listener because, you know, it's, it's so incredible to me, like just in my conversations with people who have chronic pain, like them sharing their story. And at the end of that, they'll say like, that was incredibly cathartic to have somebody actually listen 
and let me tell my story and actually understand like the struggles that I've been going through and not feel judged and not feel like I'm seeking something like I, I, you know, I'm just being heard and seen and for the first time. And that is incredibly validating. And I think, you know, for family members of people who have chronic pain, that's the one thing that people really need to understand is that people with chronic pain need to be validated. They don't want to be fixed necessarily, especially by family members, is that they need that validation. They need that someone understands them because it's so lonely and so like isolating to have this kind of condition because no one gets it. And so uh, I love that you brought that up because it's, it's hugely important. So, and then you, you were talking about, you know, how you kind of got into chronic pain, but did you also have a chronic pain experience yourself? Yes. And and I want to just say that it's, it's probably a sliver, right. Of what uh, some of the people that I've worked with, they've experienced, because I mean, so many of them have had pain for 20, 30 years. Uh-huh. Um, mm-hmm. But I do think that my story with chronic pain highlights what happens in these treatment appointments sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so I remember, uh, you know, I remember being in this period of time in my job where I was sort of maxed out. I was seeing a ton of patients. It was a really difficult time in the opioid uh, epidemic with chronic pain, there was this overlap where they were trying to reduce um, the the dose the dosages of opioids that people were on, and so everybody was really amped up. It was just like a very stressful time at work. I had just gotten married. Eventually, mm-hmm. I was pregnant, and so there were a lot of things going on in my life. In hindsight, right? Of course, at the time, I'm like I'm like I'm functioning fine, um, but I remember that. Um, you know, I started, I, I was starting to experience all these symptoms in my body. So my brain was foggy. I was having all of this muscle pain. I was fatigued and I had this unrelenting pain in my neck. And I think my, so I think my experience with pain was like a lot of people's, especially at the beginning where I went to my primary care doctor. I said, I'm having this kind of pain for the past six months. It won't go away. She ordered x-rays. She orders an MRI. I went to her office with the result, you know, to get the results. And she had a spine model that she pulled out. Um, and she said, mm-hmm. you know, you have a bulging disc. She explained what that was. She thought perhaps it's, you know, all this whiplash that I experienced when I repeated whiplash, trying to learn how to snowboard as an adult, uh, which I don't know how great of an idea that was at the time. I'm not very athletic. Um, <laughs> she thought maybe it's the way I move my body or my posture or sitting at work. Uh, she referred me to a physical therapist. Mm-hmm. My dog's visiting us right now. Um, but, but I have to say that when I heard the words bulging disc, that's all that I heard. Right. And, and even though I know better, it was sort of like, I was immediately awash in fear, sort of imagining this faulty tissue in my body that would never get better and would only worsen uh-huh. with age. I jumped to the worst case scenarios and I'm a pain psychologist. I, I should know better than this. And I still jumped to the worst. And I had so much fear instilled in me about my body in that appointment, but it made sense, right? It always makes sense to start with medical appointments and physical therapy, but you know, like I, I have this diagnosis and I need to fix it. And so I saw several physicians, I saw a physical therapist cause I, I had the hookup too, right? I was part of this pain team, but it started to enter chronic territory and maybe it already was chronic, I guess, by the time I saw her. Um, and I just could feel myself becoming more sensitive. 
And I did everything everybody told me to do. Like I'm a doer, I'm gonna do it all. If you tell me to do something, I'll do it. But it was interesting because there was this, this, this parallel process happening at the same time where um, the things that I was teaching my patients to do for their pain weren't working for me. Mm. And so I was really um, feeling like I was failing my own body, my patients. I had built this expertise in something that wasn't helping me. I started to fear movement. Uh, my pain interfered with everything that I wanted to do. And so, you know, I think the two points to make here in terms of my experience is that, that I, that is important for others to hear is that number one, the journey of chronic pain can happen at any time at different times for different people. So maybe there's an injury. I don't know. Was mine an injury? I have no idea. Maybe it was a particularly stressful phase of life plus an injury. Um, some, for some people it starts back in childhood, but I think, you know, for me, there was probably maybe some sort of injury or initial sort of thing that happened, but a lot of things maintained it, right? I was in this really stressful period of my life. I was always sensitive emotionally, physically being told I was sensitive, which took me a long time to like about myself. I was a perfectionist. I was a people pleaser. Um, these things were just failing, failing at me at this job that I found challenging, but no one ever asked me about any of this and any of my appointments, right? No one asked me about what else was going on. The whole so focus was solely physical. And so I'm saying that in hindsight, I think the roots to my pain becoming chronic was sort of this period of time that, you know, my injury or whatever happened occurred during, cause you know, your nervous, your nervous system can only stay turned on for so long before it gets burned out. And that's where we see a cycle of chronic symptoms, particularly pain set in. But the other point I want to make about the, the, the scenario is that that scenario about going to our doctor's office, getting the diagnosis, the test, the spine model, it puts in place the biomedical model right away. And we learn that the presence of pain is due to tissue damage. Something's wrong physically. They focus on the bad disc or your posture or the faulty movements. You spend years of appointments, labs, tests, interventions, uh, surgeries with disappointing results. And again, I knew better. I was a pain psychologist. I was educating people all over the hospital about what else can contribute to pain. Um, but but I, I, I was so fearful. And so I think what, you know, when you look to the medical system for answers, one thing I wish she had said to me, right, or that I wish people would say to patients is that, you know, like in my case, you know, 80 to 90% of bulging discs or herniated discs will heal within two to four months, mm -hmm. or the most common findings seen on imaging. This could be completely incidental. 87% uh, of pain-free necks have bulging discs, you know, things like that, or not to fear, don't fear, you know, because there's a, your pain can change and there's a way to unlearn this. Um, but I, I did fear quite a bit actually. <laughs> yeah. And even, even it's, it's so interesting that you say like you, you're in the field, you know, not to technically, you know, not to fear. Right. And to some extent, um, but still that biomedical model that is incredibly fear provoking. And it teaches you or trains us to believe that we need a biomedical approach to solve the problem. Um, and there, there is not a lot of this education about, I love what you said in the beginning too, like your doctor was like, she kind of came up with this idea that maybe it was from snowboarding and like, you're kind of like grasping at like whiplash, this thing, 
right? Like what was, what caused this? Was it an injury? And they're just kind of like pulling out of thin air. Nothing seems to really even make sense. But that only, that only thing that makes any sense is that disc herniation or that disc bulge that mm -hmm. showed up on your imaging. And yeah, there is not enough knowledge shared or education about what that is. And in when it is oftentimes, at least what I've seen in folks is that it's done the wrong way. It's done in a way that can sound like, oh, you know, you have this disc bulge, but it's not why you're in pain. And so that leaves this like gray area of like, well, then what is it? Oh, I'm sensitive. Okay, great. Thanks. <laughs> like that doesn't help me feel any better. <laughs> um, I guess if they asked me about stress, then I'd be like, well, now they think it's just stress, right? It, yes. But it's really like a, it's a combination of so many things. Yeah. Yeah. That is, that is so true. And, um, I, I, I'm curious, you said too, that, you know, you were trying these things that you were telling people, you were educating people about, and they weren't working for you. Did that change? Did something click at some point? Like, what was it that transformed your pain for you, if anything? Yeah. So this piece is really important because it was really that fear, I think, about my diagnosis and my pain that alongside sort of this stressful environment was driving a continued pain cycle. And mm -hmm. so at the same time that this was going on, this is when I took the new job of the interdisciplinary pain program director. And I spent a lot of time with the physical and occupational therapists mm -hmm. building up basically the whole, like designing it, right? And again, a lot of these things are things I already knew, but I had never sat and worked so closely with a physical therapist where they can now educate. They're, 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 we're learning of how to talk to patients about how pain works mm -hmm. in their bodies and how it's processed in the brain. And so, you know, I, I sort of like grabbed onto that last ember of passion I had for what I did because I was so burned out. We dove right into this program. And once I learned how to not fear my pain and decrease that level of threat amount around my symptoms, I was able to decrease my symptoms. And so I saw my personal fear of pain subside. I saw my clinical fear of pain that has sort of, you know, now I'm afraid of treating people with pain because I'm not doing anything for them. You know, that started mm -hmm. to subside. Mm -hmm. I had this confidence and I tried to share with my patients that there's no need for them to pain, fear their pain either. So it was sort of like teaching people about the brain's role in pain and how to, that they have to decrease the threat. And then those other things that I do with patients or that we might do with them work really well, but, th but that's like a, a piece that we weren't always targeting. That's so important. And so I was basically watching people in real time form new connections in their brain, re-engaging in their lives and their pain just starting to subside. It was amazing. And it, it was a parallel thing happening for me at the same time. Wow. Wow, yeah. that's so cool. That's so cool. And yeah. I, I see the same thing in my experiences too, like with, with folks. And one thing too, I'll say about the fear thing is so, so big, but sometimes it's something that, you know, you were able to actually recognize that you were afraid of movement. You were afraid of, you know, your diagnosis, you were afraid of pain and not everybody feels that same degree of fear, at least in their conscious minds. And I think sometimes what happens is just because our brains are so incredibly adaptive and survival oriented, like their main purpose of our brain is to help us survive and keep our tissues intact so that we can survive. And so 
sometimes those changes happen on a like subconscious level and and we don't even recognize that that fear is there but if that like if the body thinks thinks or the brain thinks for some reason i need to protect this part of my spine because i saw it on an mri it's going to act in a protective way pain being one of those protective responses muscle guarding being another one of those responses and you alluded earlier to some of those other symptoms that are more systemic probably like with digestion and sleep and anxiety and brain fog and you know, you know the list goes on but all of those things start to show up whether the fear is conscious fear or subconscious fear and I think that happens depending on who you are you know if it's if you tend to be a really feel fearful sort of sensitive person <laughs> for lack of a better word um, or somebody who just kind of like pushes through that fear it's still there I, for in your story and in your patient story, you, know, you talk a lot about that key role of the education being so important. And I, I completely agree with you. I think, you know, it is the number one thing that's missing from our healthcare system. We're pushing so hard with the physical therapy and these other like interventions like surgery or injections or whatever. There's so much of that biomedical stuff being pushed, but not enough of the education piece. And so in your opinion, like, what do you think are these barriers? Like, why is it so hard for people to get this education? And just, you know, one of the things that I hear the most often from folks as I'm teaching people about chronic pain, they'll say to me, why has no one ever taught me this before? Why hasn't my doctor told me this? This is one of the number one things that I hear. And so I don't know. What, what do you think? What are you, what are the barriers? Why aren't people learning about this from their doctors? <laughs> no, I know. I mean, I think I would ask patients, you know, has anyone ever taught you about what exactly pain is? No, no one ever said yes to that question, which was crazy to me. But I think conventional medicine has this really interesting approach sometimes where we think that someone with physical pain should be treated with medical interventions and someone with emotional pain should be treated with psychological interventions. Um, and also interestingly, um, there was this evaluation of pain medicine curriculum in medical schools, the people that we sort of right, depend on to treat our chronic pain uh, traditionally. And 96% of UK and US medical schools and 80% of medical schools in Europe had no compulsory teaching dedicated to pain medicine or chronic pain. So mm -hmm. there's already sort of that issue. And it's the same with psychologists. I mean, we don't get training and chronic pain, this thing that shows up in so many appointments. Um, so I think that's a, a huge part of the problem, but because of the, the years of this biomedical approach, I think so many patients and providers have subscribed to that idea that pain lives only in the body because that's where we feel it. But I mean, any, anyone listening to this could just do a quick Google search. You don't even have to dig that deep into the literature to know that the mind and the body are not separate. They're unquestionably connected all of the time. And criticisms of that biomedical model emerged decades ago, right? So this idea that pain is actually an experience that's created by our brain and impacted by a number of factors that are unique to us is not new, but it's just not prevalent in our medical system. Mm -hmm. And so this is why when you talk to people with years of chronic pain, they'll say they tried this surgery and this medication and this procedure, and why do I still have pain? And I think it's because the hyper-focus is on the biomedical, the physical, the periphery with chronic pain, 
And that's the, that's the main barrier. And things have cemented that into place, right? Like the, all of the money of big pharma, talking about pain as the fifth vital sign, that whole uh, phase and, you know, social sciences works this uphill battle to encourage putting the focus away from measuring like so-called objective symptoms and putting the focus back on the multi-dimensional person experiencing it. And I think, I think it's just, it's a culture shift that's just taking a really long time to happen. I agree. Yeah. And I, I'm so glad you brought up the the medical school education. I think the only school that re, like the only medical school that requires pain education in their curriculum, and that's not an elective because there are I think there are some electives you can that schools that'll offer chronic pain neuroscience as an elective. But the only school that requires it in the U.S. is Johns Hopkins, I believe. I could be wrong. Don't quote me on that. <laughs> but that's what I remember hearing. There's only one university that actually <laughs> teaches it. Um, and you know, you mentioned earlier too, like the physical therapy profession and OT are probably leading the way of pain neuroscience in, out of all of the different professions. I know psychology is probably number three (laughs) in there, but we're right behind you. Definitely. Um, but there's not even a whole lot of education in our PT programs and our OT programs. I know my school did teach uh, a course on chronic pain. Um, but I was super blessed to also go after my graduation and did a clinical rotation with that instructor who taught that course. And so it was like very well taught to me and it was, but like my other peers probably didn't get the same experience, you know? Um, and so it's not, it's not readily taught. And I think the, the, the thing that could have changed things for me too, you know, I was taught a little bit about it in my medical, not medical school, physical therapy school. But, you know, when you graduate as a new provider, you're following, you're shadowing other providers who probably haven't had that same exposure. And so you may come in there as like a new grad and you want to basically mirror the person that you're learning from. Um, And so those older providers who don't have that education are now kind of teaching the new people who maybe have some of it, but they're just kind of pushing it out and saying like, no, that's not the focus. We're going to do the injections. That's more important. Mm -hmm. And so like, even when our providers are taught this stuff, I think it's just not reinforced once we're in the clinic, unfortunately, that and insurance companies too, like as a PT, I don't know how it works for psychology in the field of psychology, but as a PT, I couldn't bill for like, there's no insurance code that says, pain neuroscience education. So, you know, I was highly encouraged to do therapeutic exercise, massage techniques, like that sort of thing. But when it came to, if I wanted to get paid or keep my job, basically, right? Like my employer wants to get paid (laughs) um, by insurance. There's no way to bill for this stuff. So, you know, the, the entire healthcare system really, really needs a huge overhaul in order for this to actually become a thing. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious, like what you think, like in terms of time, like you mentioned, you, you think it'll be years, like, will this ever become, become a fixed? (laughs) Will this problem ever get solved? I don't know. I think there's a, um, you know, there's a little bit of a revolution happening. I, I think there's a lot of people, psychologists, physical therapists, educators, physicians that are more vocal on this. They're trying to like 
like, like I was saying before, expand their reach a little bit to make sure more people get this information because they, I think we need to be educating our, all of the healing professions that will come in contact with this. Cause there's, there's literally five or 10 minutes of education that you could give someone about pain as the, you know, part of a threat detection system uh-huh. that would change the game right for them. And if everybody knew how to do that education, I think it would make a big difference. But I, I think, you know, the more it's talked about, the more people, the more education people like you are doing, or um, just getting that education out there is so important. I, and that's just my hope is that yeah. more people keep doing that. And, uh, and, and I think people want an answer for chronic pain, right? It's overwhelming. I know that they're the psychologists that didn't treat chronic pain that I would talk to. It's hard to hold space for that in a therapy session for them. It's very overwhelming. It feels like there's no answer for this thing. We don't know how to treat it. I think people are looking for, how can I talk to someone about their pain in a way that actually kind of neutralizes it, makes them feel heard, makes them feel empowered, um, helps them also know that I know their pain is real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that brings me to a really good question because you know you are a pain psychologist So people probably have a lot of misconceptions about like, well, why would I be referred to a psychologist for my pain? Like, I'm sure that that, like they put up walls immediately before they even talk to you about, okay, well, but, but my pain's not all in my head or it's not anxiety. I'm not just a stress case, or maybe they're questioning, maybe I am just a stress case because that's what everybody's been saying this whole time what would you say are like those big misconceptions about what you do and how you help is, and I guess in just in general with chronic pain and, and this like overlap between the physical and the psychological realms? Yeah. I mean, so I think, unfortunately, back when I was practicing clinically, the referral process to me went so poorly sometimes, right? Because they would only refer people to me after they had tried all of these medical things and it didn't work. So that made them feel like, okay, well now I'm, now there's really something wrong with me if I'm going to the psychologist or, um, you know, they, or they would have no idea why they were being sent to me. It was just sort of, well, we tried everything. Let's try this. Um, and, and a lot of people that I came in contact with hadn't heard of a pain psychologist before, and they were really confused about how I would treat physical pain, which is, which is why I think it would have been easier to be a physical therapist. You just have that like, like legitimacy there with the physical body, but there's a lot of stigma to see psychologists, even just in general for anything, which is, which is sad. It's improving, but to see as pain psychologists, I think for a lot of people feels like this rock bottom, like it really confirms for them that it's all in their head. Um, and I just think that's really unfortunate and really sad. And I hope that anytime I'm out here talking about it, that can change that for people. But, um, you know, first, what I would always say to them is that I am sorry, uh, that, you know, whatever they had experience was their experience that they'd gotten this message that it's all in their head, that they're not alone. Um, I always said to people, you know, I assure you, I believe your pain exists exactly as you say it does as exactly as you're describing it. I understand it impacts your life in so many ways. And talking to a psychologist about your pain doesn't mean that pain is all in your head or that it's not real. Chronic pain is a complex problem. And if we've only been addressing it from one perspective up to this point, such as the medical perspective, we've only 
targeted part of the issue. And so I, I would share with them that education about how now we understand that the brain controls our pain, just like it controls everything else about us. Your pain is very real, but the good news is that there's a lot that you, your brain, your nervous system can do to reduce the pain. And so the main thing that I want them to understand is that the pain, the pain is always in the brain and the body. It's always both physical and emotional. Um, and we're doing people such a disservice by not addressing both. And so sometimes it is hard to push through that stigma and even get them in the room, uh, mm -hmm. let alone to explain to them that even though we feel it in our bodies, pain is produced by our brain and that chronic pain is associated with this whole host of other changes in the nervous system from the periphery through the spinal processing of pain signals all the way up to the brain. So is it in our head? You know, sort of, it's in our brain. But, but the most rewarding thing for me, honestly, was that moment at the very beginning where you've gotten the skeptical person in your office, either skeptic, usually skeptical and often skeptical and helpless. Mm -hmm. um, and you're helping them, you're helping neutralize the fear for them and make, make a shift where they can now connect their mind and body and be interested in what else I might have to say. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that was always sort of the most rewarding part for me was seeing people make that shift in the, in the first session or the first time I met them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that too. And, and I, unfortunately, I hate the, the phrase that people use that it's all in your head sort of phrase, because, you know, when you start talking about neuroscience that, and the nervous system, the brain is part of that. And I think what people get confused is that potentially, and, and yes, emotions and feelings definitely do feed into these pathways in the pain process, but there's a separation between what we kind of think of as the brain versus what we think of as the mind. I think that there's, there has to be somewhat of a separation between those two things, because yes, pain is in your brain, but that doesn't mean that it is a purely mental thing. Right. And so that, I think if that knowledge was understood and shared publicly, I think people just had a better understanding of that. There would be less of that stigma around all of this. Like, yes, pain is all in your brain and your body, but it's not all in your head. And I think that that is a, an important distinction. And with that kind of leads me into like my next question, because like, I'm not a psychologist and I'm not an expert in trauma or stress or depression or anxiety uh, or feelings or relationships. Like I am the physical therapist. I'm really good at movement and activity and getting people moving again. But so what is, how would you describe the role of stress and anxiety and feelings and emotions and trauma in the chronic pain problem? So I think, so psychological factors play a really important role in someone's pain. I don't think anyone would argue that. Um, even, even people who, maybe it's hard for them to see that mind-body relationship, I still think most people sort of intuitively realize this. Um, and that's because stress, mood, emotions, they are always changing the pain experience because pain is always processed by the limbic system or that emotion center of the brain. So they are, they are linked, right? Um, but I, so first in regard to anxiety, depression, and other emotions, I think it's important to say that when people have had pain for years, there's a lot of loss that comes with that. So this is totally normal loss of relationships, social activity, hobbies, career, sex life, 
confidence, all kinds of things. And a lot of fear and worry come with pain too. So fear of flare-ups, worry about how pain is gonna impact your day, worry about your future. So to have symptoms of anxiety or depression with chronic pain, or if you had those um, depression and anxiety prior to pain, have it be increased, um, this is such a common and understandable experience that happens for so many people with chronic pain. And it makes sense because pain has impacted their lives in so many ways and they've lost sometimes the ability and the number of opportunities that they had before to experience pleasure. Um, and along with negative emotions often comes unhelpful thinking patterns. So this, this is really an important piece. The most common unhelpful thought patterns or we, sometimes we call them thought distortions in psychology is something we call catastrophic thinking. It's worst case scenario thinking. And it's in particular, one of the most reliable and robust predictors of an unpleasant pain experience for people, increased pain severity and emotional sort of distress. And it can show up three ways, most commonly um, ruminating about pain. So where I can't stop thinking about how much it hurts, magnifying the pain, my pain will get worse. I won't be able to work. I won't be able to support my family or thoughts of helplessness. This pain will never go away. There's nothing I can do anymore. And then, so in addition to emotions, the way we think about our pain, um, the way that we cope with our pain, active or passive coping, avoidance or overactivity, which you probably see a lot of, you know, both sides of that spectrum, all, all of these things turn up the volume on pain. So if you think about um, the ability to turn up and down the volume of your pain, like we can turn up and down the volume of our phone, all of these things can amp it up. And then the other thing is that it's inc incredibly stressful to have chronic pain for a long time. We know anxiety and fear and stress amps up, amps up the sympathetic nervous system. It makes it more sensitive. So it takes less of a stimulus to produce pain. Ultimately, it turns up the dial on pain. And when our sympathetic nervous system is amped up, not only is it more sensitive, but our heart rates increase, our muscles are more tense, our breathing is more shallow. And the additional problem to sort of compound that is in the modern world, our stress response doesn't get a lot of opportunities to turn off um, because you have your presentation and then you've got your tax appointment, but then your kid gets sick, but then your pain flares up and your, your nervous system never completes an actual cycle of stress. It never turns off and gets told I'm safe now, you can turn off, right? And chronic, a chronic level of stress like that, whether it's produced by life stressors or just the fear of pain itself, it impacts pain in a lot of ways. So shallow breathing means less oxygen, means muscles are more tense, means more pain. Negative thoughts, poor perceived ability to cope means more pain. Frustration, anxiety, depression means more pain. And so, you know, the other thing that I remember you asked me about kind of before was trauma too. So trauma, when there's a history of trauma, it can predispose someone to chronic pain. So on top of all of this, if you add sort of that history, it can mean that their nervous system is already sensitive or that they're already in a cycle of avoidance as a way of coping, which mm -hmm. we know maintain pain. Um, but trauma is not necessarily or required, necessary or required for someone to have chronic pain. Um, and it doesn't itself cause chronic pain, but it, it's, it can predispose someone to it. Mm. But I think, you know, for all of these, these things that sort of fall in the psychological realm, you know, we just see this common cycle develop where um, people experience pain, they have negative thoughts about it, they have more pain related fear, they have more avoidance, they're hypervigilant, 
and we have more distress and more pain. And when we view pain as threatening, we see negative affect avoidance all driving this pain. And when those beliefs become stronger, they're more resistance to, resistant to change and they just continue to cycle. Mm -hmm. And the brain becomes more practiced at, at producing pain. So I think that, you know, as a pain psychologist, my job was always to help people break that cycle uh, with education, teaching them skills. Because when you're educating people on how pain actually works, that it's this threat detection system that we're relocating it from your leg or your back or your neck to your brain. That's how you, that's how you make the change, right? We target pain. We overcome pain by targeting the brain. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious, can someone start to recognize in themselves those sorts of negative thoughts or those, I guess you, you call them catastrophizing thoughts, right? Uh, I don't know if I said that right, but um can someone start to recognize them in themselves and start to sort of reprocess that on their own? Obviously they should probably go to a psychologist, <laughs> but um, is that something they can recognize and sort of move past or start working on? Absolutely. This is a big part of CBT and why CBT is sort of, um, you know, a really common treatment for chronic pain because it targets these really unhelpful thoughts. But though the sort of phrases that we use is, uh, we try to help people catch it, check it and change it. Um, because sometimes over years, if, if your brain is in a pattern of, you know, I have pain or I'm in this scenario and this is my thought about it. If that's practiced over and over, you know, the brain, the brain loves routine, right? And it gets in the practice of like, then that's always your thought in response to this. And so I'm saying that because sometimes it can become a thing that happens outside of our awareness. Like automatic. Yeah, like a reflex a little bit. And so for some people, they already know they do it. And for some people, they're like, I don't really know. And so if you, if you tell them to think back to a difficult scenario or moment with their pain and what was going through their mind, they can probably tell you what these thoughts were. And they usually fall into one of several categories of unhelpful thinking. And so, you know, we might start by, you know, giving them a worksheet where you think back to certain pain scenarios, you write down your thought, was it helpful or harmful? What's a different way you can think about it? And it's not necessarily about just like positive thinking, think positive thoughts. It's, it's not like that. It, it's, you know, how can we neutralize this a little bit, make it less negative or make it more helpful for you. Yeah. And, um, you know, the more they sort of practice it, the easier it is to catch them. Um, and, and we, when you do this a CBT protocol for chronic pain, changing cognitions is actually something that happens toward the end. And there's a lot of behavioral stuff that happens first, like teaching people um, relaxation techniques, getting them re-engaged in their life in a really intentional paced way, um, sort of reconnecting with their values. And so they are presented with a lot of experiences that these thoughts will pop up in and a lot of opportunities to practice then, or by the time we get to the cognitive piece, they've already sort of changed their way of thinking, right? Because mm -hmm. they've given their body and their mind contradictory experiences with pain and movement experiences that are positive. But, but anyway, yes, absolutely. It's something that everyone can identify and then change. That's really cool. And I'm glad you mentioned that because I didn't know that that kind of comes more towards the end of that process. And it may not even be a step that's necessary if you've already done all the other work first and you realize 
I've actually already reprocessed some of my thoughts and I don't need to do it that hard work. But um, that's really interesting. I think like maybe an example, I was trying to like think of like an example of what you were saying and instead of saying like, I have a disc bulge and I'm broken and I'm fragile. You could reframe that into saying something like, I'm not as comfortable as I'd like to be, but I'm working on healing my body or something like something like that, where it's still true. It's not like I was saying like, you know, I don't have a disc bulge and I'm perfectly fine and healthy. (laughs) Um, But it's, it's just shifting that perspective a little bit instead of like convincing your brain that I'm stuck the way I am and I can never get better. And I'm in danger and I'm fragile and I'm broken and I'm at risk for a spinal cord injury if I wrote if I move wrong or if I drive over a bump in the car something like that so yeah very cool my one last question and um hopefully this is an easy one it's probably not but (laughs) it's um because you know you mentioned trauma being a predisposing factor for developing chronic pain so does that mean that in order to heal your pain you have to heal your trauma you know, there, I don't know what has come out since I read this study and it's been so long since I read it. I, I so don't quote me on this, but uh, I think there was actually a study done where um, they were trying to figure out, you know, if someone does targeted therapy for trauma, does that help their chronic pain versus someone with a history of trauma and chronic pain who doesn't, or if we target chronic pain, will that help their trauma symptoms? And I think generally what we see and what we know is that if, if you have a history, if you have post-traumatic stress disorder or a history of trauma, you should, there are treatments that are really evidence-based and important for targeting that Mm -hmm. they're not easy to go through, but they are very effective. And when you target your trauma symptoms and you treat that and, and you, work through the specific trauma that you experience that absolutely helps with the chronic pain picture. Mm -hmm. I treated, so I worked at a VA. So most of the people that I was treating with chronic pain also had a history of trauma. Sometimes their pain and PTSD came from the same trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I found honestly is that if I was treating someone who was resistant to going through trauma treatment, I don't think they did as well. Anecdotally, I don't think they did as well as they would have had they had targeted treatment for their mm-hmm. their trauma. Yeah, I because think that always they, 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 avoidance maintains both of them, right? And so yep. you can learn all these things for your chronic pain, but if you're still in a cycle of avoidance, nervous system sensitivity, hypervigilance, it's really hard to break that. Yep. I almost use the, um, and I mean, no offense to anybody who's listening, who's had a past history of trauma or not and resonates with this, but basically like, I think that when you're in that super, super protective state that your like body is in, when you have, when you're in that state, basically you can get into almost like a defensive state of like, I'm going to defend my pain condition and my, my illness and people will like, you know, they're not going to be receptive to learning about, hey, by the way, you are safe, even though you have a disc herniation, disc herniations heal. They're not going to be receptive to that kind of education if their bodies and their brains are in such a that like protective mode. And again, this is not based on 
my like any research studies this is just on my experience when they're not receptive and they're in that defensive mode of like I have this condition you don't understand it's harder to make gains with that and the other thing I'll say too like if and I I use this just in my work that I do with people like if, if I say you know if your trauma symptoms are bigger than your pain symptoms and that is like having such a huge effect on you emotionally in your relationships in your day-to-day like in your depression and your anxiety are bigger than your pain that probably needs to be addressed first before we can go into some of this other stuff because that's you're not going to be able to think or focus or you know be clear-minded enough to do that kind of necessary work but that being said i think you know what you were saying earlier is trauma focused therapy versus just doing like sort of pain therapy <laughs> is one better than the other i think both i think both need to be happening um i think that's another part of us in the medical system culturally like we have such an or mindset of like you do this or that and you we don't ever encourage or providers don't really ever encourage the, this the concept of both things happening at the same time. You were talking earlier about people waiting till like the very end to finally refer them to a pain psychologist and this being like kind of problematic. It, it almost should be like every time someone gets a physical therapy referral, it's just, you go to both, you get a ticket to both. <laughs> it should just be automatic um, because we would save so much money and healthcare costs if we could just cut down on these chronic pain conditions in general, because if we could just get everybody and stop them sooner, we wouldn't have to go through all of this. Oh, I mean, I agree with so many things. Yeah. You said. And, and at the VA, we have a, it, it was a different setup than sort of general healthcare outside of it. And so we were really lucky that, you know, for the most part, everyone who came into our pain clinic would see me and a nurse practitioner or a physician at the same time. Um, but even better, anyone who's referred to our interdisciplinary pain program did the intake with me, the physical therapist and the occupational mm-hmm. therapist. So there was like no stone unturned and we were, we were able to educate them. We, we all got the whole picture and we were able to educate them all from our different perspectives all at the same time. And it, it sends this really consistent message. Yeah. And just going back to the thing you said about, you know, doing both, you know, we had a lot of patients who I think it would have been hard to do a CBT for chronic pain protocol because they, their trauma symptoms were so high or their depression was so high. And so it was either, you know, if we focus on that first, you'll probably see your pain symptoms improve. Mm -hmm. Right. And then we can, then we can focus on pain um, or let's do this at the same time, depending, you know, on the severity of the mental health stuff. But yeah. You said it too, like with the pain program, there's that consistency. I tried starting a similar program, uh, an interdisciplinary pain management program. We had a pain psychologist and myself, the pain physical therapist. We had a team of massage therapists and acupuncture and a doctor who specialized in weaning folks off of opiate medications, if that was part of their goals. But then the director of the program was... A, a pain management specialist physician and practiced a lot of those interventional pain management procedures. So the director of our program was saying things com- in complete conflict of what, you know, the rest of the program was all about. 
And that was very hard because, you know, we'd finally make gains with, you know, educating people on, you know, this is going on in your nervous system and we need to address this sensitivity issue. And then they'd go right back to that doctor who was, had more status and more clout. And they'd say, oh, you need an RFA procedure. You need to burn the nerve. And that's, what's going to fix you. And we're just going, no, (laughs) it's not, it's not going to fix it. Absolutely. And, And that's, I think, going back to like our very beginning of this conversation, the biomedical model. And we culturally believe everything our doctors tell us. And so when your PT or your psychologist come in and are telling you something that's different, it's hard to hear sometimes like, well, my doctor said that, why didn't they tell me this? (laughs) It's like, they don't have the time to tell you. They don't have the education to tell you, but they do have needles. They have injections. They have Mm -hmm. that. No, that's totally the uphill battle that I experienced every single day. It made my job so hard. I think, yeah, I think there are programs out there that don't have that problem nearly as much, but, um, I think they're hard to find. They're, they're very rare. Even I think Mayo's clinic probably has problems with that and some of the VA. So we can probably talk for hours. We've already talked for about an hour on this. <laughs> I just want to say thank you so much for sharing all of this information and your time and your knowledge and education. Um, I love what you're doing. And so to anyone listening, how can they find you and learn more? And yeah. Oh, thank you so much for asking. I think the the best place to go to see everything is links drannaredmond.com. So if you go there, I've got, um, you know, my, you can go to my website. I have a free quiz, um, my weekly journal, which is basically a blog, a free webinar I have coming up that you can sign up for and an upcoming digital course that I'll probably release later this year about helping people kind of pace their day and, and reduce flare ups. But also there you can sign up for a weekly newsletter and you'll get really detailed chronic pain education sent every Thursday. Um, and then you'll also be in the know for, for all things upcoming. But most of my free education, if people are interested in that, it can be found on Instagram at Dr. Anna Redmond. And then in that weekly journal or in my newsletter, that's the best place to get it, I think. Awesome. And we will make sure that we share those links in the description and the notes section so that everybody can find those if you're listening or watching back later. And so, yes, thank you for sharing all of that. And any last final parting words, anything last you want to say? It was just fun to experience the physical therapist being psychologist magic again. I really enjoyed it. It's been a long time since I've done that. So thank you for inviting me. Amen to that. I totally agree. Yeah. So we'll find Dr. Anna Redmond on social media, follow her, grab all of her links, take her quiz and check out her new webinar that's coming up. And with that, we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Chronic Pain Breakup Podcast. If you found this episode helpful, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes. And if you want to take this relationship to the next level, you can connect with me and other pain crusaders inside my private Facebook group, Battling Chronic Pain with Neuroscience, where these episodes are actually recorded live. And I'd love to hear from you. Share your questions and biggest struggles with your chronic pain recovery journey by reaching out to me on Facebook or on Instagram at Pain Crusader. Thanks again for listening and never stop learning.